The following episode of the 9pm edict contains sexually transmitted infections, disturbing mental imagery, including vaginal discharge, medical misinformation, and underpants. Wednesday the 13th of December 2023, as Australia faces another COVID wave before Christmas, well least if you believe the scary news reports and with the dirty dirty holiday season coming up i thought the summer series should kick off with infectious diseases physician dr trent yarwood and it does in this episode apart from the covid uh, we take a very wonky dive into infectious diseases including sexually transmitted infections chlamydia will always be the the king of stis We get serious and discuss the appalling state of Indigenous health in Australia. Take uh, gonorrhea, for example. Gonorrhea, there's not a lot of it in in sort of young heterosexual white people, but for people who live in remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, the rate is 250 times higher than the rate for similarly aged non-Indigenous people. And Trent provides us with a simple explanation for so many modern problems. If you want the super, super summarised version of what the problem is, the problem is capitalism. And more generally, how everything is just getting worse. Hello, I'm Still Gerian. This is the 9pm capitalist supply chain of medical problems with tropical cyclone avoider Dr Trent Yarwood. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr no. Trent Yarwood, we are recording this on Monday morning. Hello, by the way. Hello, thank you for having me back. Uh, because you've fled Cairns early, thanks to tropical cyclone Jasper. Now, for international listeners, a tropical cyclone is what Americans call a hurricane and what people in East Asia, or bits at least of it, call a typhoon, and there's lots of names. Um, Jasper's quite a biggie, isn't it? Uh as we speak, the Bureau have just released another cyclone update and it, it ah, yes. seems that it's only going to be a Cat 2 when it crosses the, the coast. So that is not as bad as it could be. Oh, good. But it is, what is that? Because it goes up to five, doesn't it? Well, it used, like everything in Australia, it used to go up to four and then as the world has continued to go to hell in a handbasket, they've had to extend the groups of categories for how shit things are. So... They did that with fire warnings, right? They used to go up to extreme and then that wasn't enough. So they now go past extreme to catastrophic. Yes, and and it's the same for cyclones. So it used to be, uh, so Cat 1 and Cat 2 were tropical cyclone, Cat 3s and Cat 4s were um, severe tropical cyclones and now Cat 5 is a catastrophic tropical cyclone. It's all very reassuring, and of course, the temperature maps that are published by the Bureau of Meteorology—they had to invent an extra colour to go at the end because they'd run out of, you know, <laughs> we we thought we'd only go up to forty-five, we now have to go up to fifty, and maybe past that, need another standard colour. How good is the modern world? Yeah, it's fabulous. Well, look. Um, with that in mind, let's go back to uh, a slightly less modern world. Let's go back to. Uh, to 1976 and listen to this message. You'll love this. I really wish you wouldn't talk about such things at a party. I mean, really, it isn't very polite, is it? I mean, if, if I ever, ever, I mean, I would just die. Syphilis? Gonorrhea? Yeah, I heard some of the boys came back with something like that. Me? I don't worry. Just a little old shot and zip. You're cured. Syphilis? Gonorrhea? Well, I hear it's a real epidemic. All the kids have it. Syphilis? Gonorrhea? Me? Too old. I'm through with that sort of thing. Fine. Not my problem. It's not my problem. Not my problem. 
It's not my problem. Not my problem. Not my problem. It's not my problem. It's not my problem. Not my problem. It's not my problem. It's not my problem. But then on the screen comes the message. VD, it is your problem. That's a US Army VD awareness film from 1976. Uh, Of course, these days, Trent, we say sexually transmitted infections rather than venereal disease, but uh, syphilis and gonorrhea, uh, can we look forward to getting that over Christmas? Look, I was thinking about this after you sent me the running sheet, and I figure that Christmas for many of us is a time to spend time with our extended family. So I certainly hope not. Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> but, well, oops, um, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> but look, <laughs> it's actually very different. Hi, very Uncle Dan. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Uh, very difficult to find <sighs> statistics on these sort of things that break notifications down by month i thought you know surely there must be some data that says that you're more likely to get an sti in december or or january than the rest of the year but most of the figures that i could easily find were just um aggregate numbers by year which of course doesn't help with the whole christmas Ah. thing but you know maybe new year's perhaps because that's less about family and more about getting smashed and going to the pub and trying to pick someone up for for midnight kisses You can't get it from kissing, Trent. Are you kidding? Well, you well, that depends on what sort of kissing. <laughs> I realised I, I said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes technically correct is the best sort of correct. Yeah, yeah. All right, I shouldn't say that, but but syphilis and gonorrhea. These they still, to my ear, sound very old fashioned, but they're not, of course, are they? Oh, look, really, no, not at all. Um. I guess gonorrhea is a bit easier to talk about. Um, it, it, in Australia, at least, it's never been a very sort of common uh, STI across the whole of the community, but there has been sort of, I guess, certain populations where the, the rates are much higher. And, and those historically in Australia have been men who have sex with men um, and uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people. And mm. um, that really hasn't changed very much over the you know a good number of years. We did see that the rates of all STIs went down a little bit during COVID, which people are still arguing as to whether that's uh, there was less testing going on because people were locked up, or whether there was less sex going on because people were locked up. But we haven't really seen um, a lot of gonorrhea in the sort of young heterosexual Caucasian population, which, you know, is the sort of, I guess, the the modal group of STI patients because they're the most, you know, the most common single demographic group. Um, syphilis uh. is more complicated. Syphilis historically has been much the same. It's mainly been a disease of um, gained by sexual men and there's been sort of variable rates in, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. A number of years ago, I think about 20... 13 or 2014, uh, there was uh, an opinion paper published in the Medical Journal of Australia that said, you know, syphilis is the time for eradication here. We were very hopeful that the numbers had sort of really fallen to the level where uh, like a public health eradication program could have been possible. But since the late 20 teens and, you know, really the last sort of um, probably eight years, we've seen a, a very large increase in the numbers of syphilis cases all across the northern Australia, sort of northern Western Australia, the Northern Territory and far north Queensland, uh, uh, which sad. started off in young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people but has really spread and is now becoming more of an issue in, um, in the general population. We're seeing cases in young heterosexual women and, you know, v- tragically there's been not sure about the exact figure, certainly more than five, it's possibly more than a dozen um, neonatal deaths from congenital syphilis over over the last five years, which you know is I guess something that we consider should never really happen in a in a developed country with a developed healthcare system. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, syphilis these days, it's not even like six weeks of a weekly shot of penicillin. It's now one big one, isn't it? Uh, depends. Syphilis is very complicated to talk about succinctly. Uh, uh, if if you have early syphilis, you can just have a single sh- shot. 
penicillin. Uh, if you have got sort of late or untreated syphilis that's been going on for a while, then you need three shots weekly. Now, you sent me a link to an interesting paper from about three years ago that specifically looked at young Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. I should say Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, but for simplicity, let's just say, well, Indigenous people. Why don't I just say that? Because that's that's the, the generic term. Looking at some of those quotes there, it, it was it quite frightened me that, that one young woman, uh, 17, she said, if they had an infection, most of them would just let it ride and hope that it'll clear up in a few days or so. And this is even in a discussion when they're talking about having, I'm going, I'm going to say it, dear listener, penis pus, which is never a good sign, or vaginal discharge uh, and pain and whatever. Now, even if they do have a clinic within reach, and that's you know a big ask in in the northern part of Australia, they don't want to go or just to get checks because it's then assumed that they're infected and they're a filthy person and a slut and all of that, which is which is not good stuff, particularly as they they, they don't seem to have uh, as as a demographic a whole lot of awareness of what the symptoms are and what uh, the problems can be. And I mean, as we know, syphilis doesn't just clear up in a couple of days, mate. The rates of STIs in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people is, you know, it's really should be much more of a national scandal than it is. You know, we. so I was saying before that gonorrhea, there's not a lot of it in, in sort of young heterosexual white people, but for people who live in remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, the rate is 250 times higher than the rate for similarly aged non-Indigenous people. You know, like just two it's hundred and fifty times. Yes, yeah, exactly. And it's just it's outrageous. It's but the the factors that feed into that are very, very complicated. So, you know, obviously in very remote areas, access to a sexual health clinic might be an issue. Um, in places that are big enough to have a sexual health clinic, as you've just said, there's the stigma of going to an STI clinic and in small communities it's a pretty good chance that you will either know or be related to through some sort of kinship group the person who is working at the clinic who will then therefore yeah. know that you have been diagnosed and with and treated for an STI. Um, and, uh, you know, that is sort of on the background of the, the massive structural problem we have with the health system that the health system by and large is run and staffed by middle-aged white guys like me who are, you know, aren't really very good at delivering culturally appropriate healthcare. Huh. You know, speaking of your experience at your, you know, urban, you know, very gay-friendly general practice, if you think about the sort of sexual health promotion messages that we've done over the last 40 years that, that HIV has been a thing, how many of the ads that you see in, you know, the Sydney queer street press about HIV or STI screening or any of that sort of stuff feature a buff white guy not wearing his shirt standing in the shower saying, <laughs> hey, you should, you should get tested? The answer is almost all of them. And a buff white guy doesn't talk to young Aboriginal people or especially not young Indigenous heterosexual people. Speaking of HIV, these rates in Australia have been plummeting, but again, with problems in, in certain communities. Yeah, absolutely. Our overall rate of HIV has been falling for a number of years, with the caveat, I guess, that a lot of people who do the, the statistics for this sort of thing in Australia, most mainly at the um, Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales, all got sidelined into doing COVID data and COVID stats mm. for the last couple of years. So the last sort of few years of data are a bit less robust. But the overall number of new diagnoses is falling and that is very much driven by a reduction in diagnosis in gay and bisexual men, which is because they are the targets of those, you know, buff white guy health promotion messages that I was talking about and that we've been very successful in getting Caucasian sort of or, you know, non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in urban clinics either on treatment if they're HIV positive or on PrEP if they're HIV negative. And so the rate in that sort of key risk group is falling. And what that means is that the relative 
proportion of new diagnoses who are in people who are not in, in air quotes high risk. So, you know, heterosexuals, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, are now accounting for a much larger proportion of our new HIV diagnoses. But overall, the numbers are still down, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, proportionally. Yeah, good. I'm glad I've cleared that. It's very uh, complex. It, it, it is very complex and that's that's why uh, we'll get on to COVID in a bit, where it, which will make things much simpler. Uh, Monkeypox was a thing we probably spoke about last time. Mm. That really never became much of a thing, despite the fear, despite the... Uh, um, I mean, the rapid vaccination campaign, particularly amongst, again, um, interurban gay men who are travelling, particularly uh, before World Pride Day back in – that was this year, wasn't it? Back in March. Good heavens. It was. February, it March. Was, yeah. Doesn't time fly? Um, that did not turn out to be the epidemic that was feared. Why is that? Uh, I think we've – You've touched on sort of the major issues. So number one um, was the very aggressive and successful vaccination rollout there where we basically spent a lot of resources aggressively promoting vaccination to, to people who we thought were at the highest risk, especially anybody who mentioned that they were going to Pride. Um, the, we, you know, we were lucky in Australia as in that we were relatively isolated from the world and the there was less travel and you know there was a, a greater time for people to get here so the the likelihood that we were going to get cases before we um were, were sort of prepared for it was was lower and because there was really a lot of very um very significant engagement by the by the queer community in doing what we could to 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 reduce this risk in getting people vaccinated. And, and, you know, it was really a great example of peer mobilisation that, that was sort of part of why Australia's um, response to HIV in the 80s was so successful, was really repeated at, mm. I guess, at a smaller scale for monkeypox this year. So you're right, we were very lucky. Pulling back then to, to, to look at Christmas and catching up with the family, again, I'm so embarrassed to have not realised the implication. Let's talk, maybe it's office Christmas parties. Um, Much better. Yeah, or not. Yeah, what are we, <laughs> or, uh, or not. I mean, apart from, you know, your ass copied on the photocopier and, and too much alcohol um, uh, and too much um, everything else at Christmas time. Uh, what are, what are the favourites at the moment? What are, what are the favourite STIs to, to get? What's popular? Chlamydia will always be the, the king of STIs. It's, you know, people talk about we need okay. chlamydia eradication. It's really never going to be possible. Um, there's talk about a chlamydia vaccine, um, you know, in the works, but it's going to be very, very difficult to eradicate. And in terms of what we see day-to-day -day in a sexual health clinic, it, it, chlamydia is, is, you know, the number one. Okay, kids, well, and, and adults, go and look up the details of that. I will link, of course, to uh, all the things we we talk about on this podcast on the on the website. As we as we do, we started off with a very serious topic, obviously, which we had to do. Uh, but now, uh, let's change that topic. <laughs> The state is in the grip of a fresh COVID wave and we are being warned vaccination is our best defence. The infection rate has exploded, doubling in a little over a month and authorities are on edge as Christmas approaches. That report is only from a couple of weeks ago. The state is New South Wales, so we're seeing news uh, across the country of a, a wave. I don't know what wave we're up to, but Dr Trent, are you on edge? Uh, I'm actually something that's much better than on edge. I am on leave. <laughs> All right, putting that aside. <laughs> uh, look, I think well, I think I said last time I was on the pod. I am alert but not alarmed. You know, given my mm -hmm. status as being on holidays, I am perhaps a little bit less alert than I might otherwise be. But I'm certainly not particularly alarmed. When we say wave, I mean, sure, things come in waves and a bunch of people will uh, get infected, the infection spreads and eventually it peters out for whatever reason rather than exploding into a, an epidemic. We, we, that seems to be the thing now. When you see the numbers, or at least until you went on leave, how does it compare 
to previously because surely a lot of our perception of this is based on early numbers we saw back when there were no vaccines, back when we didn't know how to treat people who were uh, getting infected, et cetera, et cetera. But now, for example, I, I have my GP's you know, mobile number and, and he said to me, if I, if I test positive, message him and I'll have a prescription for antivirals within 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, again, complicated. Can you get it down to like a 10-second soundbite, though? Because this, you know, this is a podcast. It's not. Sure. <laughs> so numbers are That's much less than they were voice. in the peak of 2020. The, the numbers were so much lower that a doubling in the number of new cases is more cases than it was a month ago, but still fewer cases than it was in 2020. And it's important to keep that in perspective. The, the waves that we are seeing now is perhaps more piss week swell than an actual wave. Mm. Um, so there are more cases around than there were. I've been working on the wards for the last four weeks before I went on leave, and we are certainly seeing more COVID in the hospital. But, you know, it's not anywhere near like what it was in the, the sort of the height of the pandemic. So when I see a news story like uh, Townsville, this is from last week, it said more than 100 staff at North Queensland's only tertiary hospital are on sick leave with COVID as cases surge in Townsville. But then you read a bit further down, it says, well, that's 106 people who are who are uh, COVID positive uh, out of more than 7,000 staff. So that's 1.5%. It strikes me that that's the kind of sick leave level you'd get, I mean, less than what you get if there was just a bad cold going around. The sick leave is a combination of um, uh, regular colds and some COVID, and there's been a bit of influenza around this year. You know, we've seen this all around the world, that as the lockdowns have gone away, there has been a a rebound in the the numbers of all respiratory viral infections. And so you're right, I think this is not an unusual level of leave for respiratory virus season. Um, You're right that... um, you know, it's a relatively small proportion of total staff, but hospitals are such complicated and specialised beasts these days that even a sort of a, what is a relatively small level of sick leave can cause problems. So, for example, if you've got an outbreak uh, of COVID or, you know, rhinovirus or whatever the other respiratory virus is in your, say, your nurses who work the dialysis machines for, for the patients with kidney disease. If you don't have enough specialist dialysis nurses to look after the patient safely, then you have to close dialysis chairs because you can't provide that service safely. Similarly, if all of the staff who work in anaesthetics in the theatres go to their staff Christmas party and someone goes to the party when they're sick because they don't want to miss the party and everybody gets sick, then you don't have enough specialist anaesthetics nurses for the surgeons to be able to safely, well, for the anaesthetists to be able to safely anaesthetise people so they can have surgery. So, uh, you know, a relatively small number of sick people in the wrong place in the hospital can have service impacts. Um, You also have to remember that many healthcare workers, nurses, doctors have young families and kids are little snot goblins and, uh, you know, it's very easy for people to be knocked out either because they have been given a contagious disease as a a lovely end-of-year gift from their children or um, that they are having to stay home and care for their their kids who are sick. So there's all of these sort of complex factors that feed into hospital sick leave. So I don't think what we're seeing at the moment is a disproportionate number of cases of sick leave. An interesting thing in Queensland, I don't know if it's the case in other states, is that um, we still have provision for special COVID leave. However, you actually have to either have a PCR, which you have to you know, go out and get your GP to organise and then pay for and have the swab and get a printed out copy of the result and supply that to your manager, or you have to fill out a statutory declaration saying that, that you actually have COVID. You can't just snap a photo of a rat on your phone and send it to your boss and say, see, I need my five days of COVID leave. So it's, yeah, it's, it's tricky. From a doctor in a hospital point of view, we've certainly been seeing more patients come through the hospital with COVID. Um, I've been looking after a man over the last few weeks who's been critically ill from COVID, uh, been in intensive care, uh, you know, almost needed to go to another hospital because he had respiratory failure, but he was not vaccinated. 
up. See, again, that's that's the, the, the message that I think people lose in a lot of the statistics, that people aren't vaccinated or not sufficiently vaccinated or they have particular medical conditions which makes them more vulnerable and so on. I did see something the other day. It, it I, I mean, I was going to screenshot a whole lot of just weird misinformation from the internet, but I'm, I'm sure we can, we, can, we, we can live without that. But one said, oh, people aren't, you know, taking care of themselves and they're not wearing masks and whatever. And, and now, you know, kids are getting sick with a cold three or four times a year. That's not normal. That used to not happen. And I go, yes, yes it did. Mm-hmm. That is totally normal. Yeah, absolutely. Like pre-COVID, respiratory virus infection management has just completely gone down the memory hole. You know, nobody used to, much to my frustration as a doctor who works in hospitals and deals with these sort of infection control questions, used to give a shit about people with acute respiratory viral infections coming into hospital. You'd be like, person sitting in their open cubicle in the emergency department coughing and spluttering everywhere, and you go, why isn't that person in isolation? They go, oh, they've just got a cold. Well, yes, but our hospital's full of vulnerable people and there's like 30 staff standing around him. Don't you think he should be in isolation? Oh, but he's just got a cold. And that used to be normal frustration for me and then COVID happened and then everybody completely went off the other end of the scale going, oh, my God, we're all going to die if we don't have those stupid spacesuits from um, the movie Outbreak, which is a terrible movie that you should never watch. Um, And... (laughs) Now we're kind of back in this in-between land where people are going, oh, everybody has stopped caring about COVID and isn't this terrible, but we're probably still actually taking all respiratory viral infection a lot more seriously than we did five years ago. And yet if you don't wear a mask now, you're suddenly a COVID denier and you're part of – I mean, it. again, I've complained about this with you before and I did when we talked with Ubalidi Vasekra – um, uh, well, I spoke with her a few weeks ago. It's so polarised now that if you express a view that either of the extremes, COVID's solved or gone or whatever, then you're a denier, which is not true. I mean, it's not gone. Of course it's there. The flu hasn't gone. Measles hasn't gone. Nothing's gone except maybe smallpox. Um and at the other end of the spectrum, it's, it's oh, my God, we're all going to die again, again, again. One quote I will pull out, though, uh, this is one that I've put in the running sheet to show you. Uh, someone who recently had COVID and said, it's so different from back when we were able to track cases and limit spread. At least we did that for a good while, eh? Now, being able to track cases and look at a website and go, here's where positive tests happened. There was one in, you know, Burwood in Sydney, and there was another one in, um, you know, South Brisbane or wherever it was. That didn't necessarily make anyone safer because surely, how can knowing that there was a positive case yesterday in one suburb mean anything? Like that person got infected two or three days previously. Were you even there? Were you in the same place? It's Oh, look, I don't <sighs> quite agree with that. I think that that, okay. that sort of intensive contact tracing and surveillance is very useful when the incidence of a disease is very low. And so measles is a great example where there's almost oh, yeah. no measles around. And so when you see a case of measles, it's helpful to say there was a person who had measles who went here and here and here and here. And if you're not immune to measles or if you're immunosuppressed and you're in those places, watch out. So that works and is an effective public health strategy because there is almost no measles. When we had almost no COVID because, you know, Operation Closed the Borders and Fortress Australia was doing a very effective job of keeping COVID out, that was a an arguably useful public health strategy. Now, COVID is absolutely fucking everywhere. So, the contact tracing for COVID is you assume that it's everywhere all the time and knowing that it's in this one particular place on this particular day is meaningless because it's probably just over there and we just don't know about it. You know, it's it, it's a difference of scale. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, which brings me now <laughs> oh dear, to this story. At hospital emergency rooms, the sick children just keep coming. It's From China. toddlers to teens, mostly with respiratory infections, including pneumonia. It's been 10 days now, this mother says, and the fever is back. 
Health officials say the surge is happening not just here in Beijing, but in clusters across northern China. This is one of the biggest children's hospitals in the city, and it's full of kids who are coughing, hooked up to IV bags, are still waiting to get treatment. The headlines here about a respiratory disease outbreak triggered alarm bells and prompted the World Health Organization to ask Chinese authorities for answers. Well, have we got those answers, Trent? Look, I think it's really important to call out the explicitly call out the racism in this story. I reckon mm. if you went to the Children's Hospital in Randwick or the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne or or any children's hospital in any predominantly white part of the world, that you would find that there were they had an emergency department full of kids with respiratory viruses, because you know refer to my previous comments about children being feral snot goblins. Um, And are we now paying more attention to China because of the Wuhan virus? We probably are. And people going, oh, well, this is going to be the next big thing. I think you asked me at the end of the last time I was on the podcast if some new variant of influenza was going to be the next big thing. And I said, nah, probably not. And here we are, what, six months later, and it wasn't. So go Trent and his (laughs) predictions. Uh, You know, this is just another one of those. (laughs) So we are seeing post-COVID rebound in respiratory viral infections because we're now not all locked down. We haven't had this continuous exposure to all of these respiratory viruses to get a degree of immunity that means that you know we're a bit protected from them. And so we come out back into the open, we're exposed to all of these viruses all around us and, and more people get them and it, it's a bit more noticeable because it's against the background of, you know, we essentially had have had no flu in Australia in you know, 2020, 2021, because we were all locked down. Mm. You know, it, it was it almost went away completely. And now against that backdrop, everyone's saying, oh, my goodness, I'm getting two colds a year and all these, all these sick kids. You know, yes, it's, it's the combination of that's what you expect to happen when we come out of lockdown and the fact that we're comparing it to a falsely low baseline. With something like flu, if, if there hasn't been much in the community for a while, does it work that then it's more likely to hit in one big spike as opposed to move slowly through the community over you know the course of six months? Uh, I'll come back to flu in a sec because it's a little bit more of a complicated example. It definitely works that way with pertussis, whooping cough. Uh, you, you tend to see spikes in the number of cases every five years, and that's because the people who had it last time, their sort of immunity wanes a little bit, and they're, but they're still... Uh, you know, in contact, you know, five-year-olds have probably statistically got younger siblings who, are, you know, are more at risk. And so you, there's just this circulation that, that happens in this sort of cyclic way. Um, flu, the answer is also yes, but for two different reasons. Number one is there's that sort of background level of immunity. You know, next year's flu virus will be different enough from this year's flu virus that you still need to get a new vaccine, but it's also similar Mm. enough that you have a little bit of cross-protection. So if you haven't had that exposure to flu through getting infected naturally or if you haven't been vaccinated, then you will tend to get it a little bit more severely. Then the second way that flu does that is when there's what we call an antigenic shift, which is a like a significant change in the, the surface proteins of the flu virus, um, where it, it sort of, instead of just changing a little bit from year to year, it changes very significantly in all of a sudden. And that has been responsible for all of the sort of the big flu outbreaks. So, you know, the, the 1918 Spanish flu and the Hong Kong flu in the 60s, whenever it was, and then swine flu in 2009. So, you know, all of those sort of big uh, significant flu epidemics slash pandemics have, have come when there's been a big change in the virus rather than just that gradual incremental change. Gotcha. Uh, and finally on COVID, we've got the new vaccines hitting the shelves this week. Mm, today, in fact, as of time of recording. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. So who needs to go out? Uh, anybody who hasn't had a vaccine or COVID in the last six months, um, anybody who isn't sure that they've had COVID or a COVID-containing vaccine in the last six months, anybody who is at high risk, so people with, um, you know, on chemotherapy, immunosuppressing conditions um, or, uh, you know, chronic lung disease, things that make them more at risk of getting severe disease um, should definitely go and, and get one of these boosters. Okay. Well, look that up, folks. Um Uh, And best of luck with your COVID over Christmas, everybody.
Okay, I admit <laughs> we've been fairly serious in the podcast so far. We do lighten it up a bit in the second half. As you may have guessed, this is the halftime break uh, where this is future me talking about the thing we recorded uh, two days ago or a day ago. Don't, don't worry about the details. This is the housekeeping bit. There's, there's quite a bit because there's quite a lot happening. I'm going to tell you about the episodes coming up. I'm going to tell you about the 8pm quiz and I'm going to say a few thank yous uh, for the supporters. So I'll power through that now. The next episode will be with John Birmingham, one of our, our most popular guests, the author, the columnist, the all-round chap. If you're a supporter, if you've got trigger words or a conversation topic, and, and do remember, if you have an annual subscription, you get a new thing every year. You you, you you should ask me if you want to get them in. Anyway, get those to me by Friday lunchtime. That's midday this Friday, the 15th of December, Australian Eastern uh, Daylight Time, for John Birmingham. Then I'm recording with Dr. Alice Gorman, Dr. Space Junk, and with astrophysicist Rami Mandel. We're going to look back at the year in space. That one, you need to get your input in a bit earlier. Uh, by Thursday night, 8 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time this Thursday, the 14th of December. And both of those episodes will be out before Christmas. Also before Christmas, we will have the first of two episodes of the 8 p.m. quiz video live stream by... Oh, I want to say popular request, but by, by request. Uh, have a look at my YouTube channel under my name, linked in the thing, and you'll find it. Or just look for the 8pm quiz. There will be two of these, one before Christmas on Tuesday the 19th of December. There'll be one after Christmas on Thursday the 28th of December. They'll be at 8pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time on those dates. Uh, dates. Just subscribe to my YouTube channel uh, and you'll get reminders. Like, that's how this works, right? Anyway, they're fun. You can play last year's uh, by going to YouTube. Uh, and then after Christmas, uh, I'm going to sneak in an end-of-year episode with Snarky Platypus as well. That's of the this podcast, not of the quiz. You don't want to look at him. He's, he's a platypus. Um, and uh, that one won't count towards the summer series. And I should say thank you to everyone who supported uh, the 9pm Summer Series 2023 crowdfunding campaign. That's why you're getting six special guest episodes of this podcast over summer. That's why uh, you're getting two episodes of the 8pm quiz before the end of the year. And it's also why I'm not panicking about having enough to eat over, over the holiday period. Uh, because this is important to me. So uh, thank you very much to everyone who supported that campaign. You are listed on the podcast website for this episode. Uh, and I'll thank uh, various groups of you uh, as we go along. For this this one, I want to say thanks uh, to uh, the people who bought Conversation Topics, both of whom decided to remain anonymous. I want also, I also want to thank people who bought three trigger words. That's Dave Gorkroger, John Lindsay, Peter Viettel, Philip Merrick, and one person who chooses to remain anonymous. All of those people have contributed before. So I'm, I'm really happy with that. Thank you for uh, the return uh, visit. And uh, another nine people who chose to have no reward at all, even though some of those people were the most generous of all. Thank you so much to those people. Uh, and I'll be thanking more groups of you uh, as we go through the season. And also for this episode, thanks to Frank Filipponi, whose Edict 02A Premium Pint annual subscription uh, renewed. That's always good. You can you can do this too. You can go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip and look at other ways to support it. I am going to rehash that for the new year, so some things will change a bit, but I think I can make it easier to understand. Uh, go there, the 9pmedict.com slash tip. There's a link through to the subscriptions, uh, but I'm going to set it up so you can just buy trigger words or conversation topics at, at any old time, not just 
during the campaigns. And, and earlier in the new year, I'm going to think about merch too. Merch. So if you have any thoughts on that, let me know. The9pmedic.com slash tip. Go there now, go there now, go there now. Uh, time for some trigger words, Trent. Uh, as regular listeners to the pod will know, this is the glass jar of transparency, which once more has some folded up pieces of paper in it after a bit of a gap. Each one contains a word uh, chosen by a supporter in the hope that it will trigger a conversation. But Trent, first, there's one that's been sent in specifically for you. Is it from Justin Warren? It is not from Justin Warren. He, he missed out this time. It is from Bernard Walsh. Ah, Bernard is an old fencing mate of mine from when I was at uni. Indeed, and his trigger word is on guard. <laughs> there we go. I picked it. <laughs> so as as <laughs> I have just, just alluded to, um, I was – well, I still am, although I've been in remission for a number of years, uh, a fencer. Remission uh, from fencing. You know, it was. I always. I was. So I went to a public school, and um, I always used to say to people that I think the only thing that would have turned out any differently for me if I'd gone to a private school instead of a public school is that I probably would have done fencing as my school sport instead of hockey. You know, always sort of thought it was rather cool and uh, was interested in getting into it, but didn't really have the the opportunity. And what's the attraction? Stabbing people with swords is fun. Okay. Does there need to be more attraction? You should have become a surgeon. I, I don't know. <laughs> you didn't become a surgeon then. Uh, I'm, I'm no. I didn't have the the temperament or perhaps the technical skills necessary to be a surgeon. Okay. So just just that, rough work with that, a sword. No fine. That, that can be that can be another story. The, the why I'm not a surgeon story. But um, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, I know I had surgeons as clients once. So yeah. <laughs> Um, when I was doing my science degree, I was just taking a shortcut to one of my um, one of my labs, and I sort of walked through this little building, this digi old sort of you know old red brick university building, and there was a poster that had the Errol Flynn swinging from the you know the um, wagon wheel chandelier, sort of swinging a sword, saying you know, do you think fencing is cool? Come along to the QUT fencing club, and so I um, I did, and I thought this is even more awesome than I thought it was, and so I I maintained an interest in it during my university days and um, ended up, when I left uni, I, f- I found a, a little local fencing club in Brisbane, which was where I met Bernard and fenced for a number of years. And then when I moved to Cairns, <clears throat> I sort of thought, oh, I'm going to have to pack away all my fencing gear and it's going to go rusty and I'll probably never use it again. But when I arrived up here, one of the um, the business managers at JCU had been a, a like a sort of professional level fencing coach in his former life in the UK. And so he he and I together actually started up the JCU Fencing Club, which then when it came around time for me to do um, exams and other various bits and pieces just sort of fell away and I haven't really had time to get back into it. Were you an aficionado of the rapier or the epée or what else is there? The uh, foil, epée and <laughs> sabre are the... So in, in sort of like the, the type of fencing that you do at the Olympics, then the three weapons are epée, foil, and sabre. And everyone mm-hmm. everyone learns, learns foil. It's the sort of the default weapon that everybody starts off with. Uh, and then I, I my preferred weapon is epée. Lovely. We will look that up. Thank you, uh, Bernard Walsh, for uh, triggering that little uh, bit of insight into uh, Trent's desire to stab people. Um we will draw one from the uh, jar as well, from the glass jar of transparency. And this is from Matt Arkell, who provides the word flammable. Flammable. Hmm. What does that trigger? Flammable. Actually, from when I was at the same uni, that reminds me of a very um, uh, embarrassing story of my impatience with doing boring, pointless stuff in our uni labs, um, which also relates to my uh, abiding uh-huh. interest in hand washing. So we, it was in our microbiology 
sort of subject and we were the project we were doing was um, uh, taking swabs from the backs of people's hands and see what bacteria would grow on them uh, you know from the the swabs taken oh that's fun yeah washing washing your hands uh, just with water you know as people sort of wave their hands under the water in the in the to- toilets on their way out uh, washing it with regular you know just supermarket bar soap washing with the sort of you know pump pack dedicated hand wash stuff that you have in hospitals or doing at that stage what at that stage was the sort of the standard of care for um, doing a surgical scrub which was basically you rubbed your forearms and hands and all the bits and pieces down with alcohol and then you waited for the alcohol to evaporate and then you did another another wash with the, the disinfectant sort of soapy stuff and so there were five of us in a group and we each you know did one of these methods of hand washing to see what the before and after difference in the plate counts was and so i ended up um drawing the do the surgical scrub um uh you know piece of paper out of the jar and was had (laughs) had been a bit too bit too liberal with the application of the alcohol it was taking a very 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 long time to dry and i'm sort of waving my arms around and and so i went oh this is stupid I can't be bothered just waiting here for my arms to finish dripping all this alcohol. So I'm just going to very, very gently hold my arms like at least a metre and a half above this Bunsen burner to, um, you know, heat them to speed speed the evaporation of the alcohol. And so as I was talking to the guy standing next to me who was doing the rest of the experiment, I was sort of not paying sufficient attention to my hands and they gradually, gradually drifted downwards until there was a foof. And um, my forearms, which are moderately hairy, uh, became quite hairless, except for all the little crumbs of burnt hair. Ah, that smells terrible too when that happens. It so does. fortunately no serious burns? No, 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 it was fine. It was just the hair. But it also feeds into what I was just saying about, about my destiny was not surgery. <laughs> There's all sorts of flammable gases in a in a in a operating theatre, aren't there? Uh, not as many as you would think, because a lot of uh, what they do in that used to be done with sutures to you know type, stop bleeding in small blood vessels is actually done with diathermy these days, which is like a little electric current probe thing, and um, you know you just have like uh, kind of looks like a very very small and very expensive because it's medical equipment taser, and they the surgeons just sort of put it up against the bit of bleeding and go and it sort of buzzes a little a little spark and then that that diathermies the blood vessel and stops it from bleeding so if the operating theater was significantly full of flammable ah, gases that would right. be particularly safe no well the reason i thought this is uh last night i watched an old episode of james burke's excellent series connections which i think is from the early 1980s uh james burke uh i think he's still alive but he uh was then working as a, a documentary maker about Science and the History of Science and Connections is a fascinating series where uh, he traces the connections through history that makes things possible. Uh, Like, you know, what did the invention of the plough then imply and how that triggered the next development and so on and so forth. Well, that sounds really good. Uh, You can find it all on YouTube. It's on the Internet Archive. It is wonderful stuff, but the first episode of Connections shows how technology is so deeply interrelated and it relates to a 1960s collapse of the electricity system across uh, northeast United States, uh, including New York City, and then showing how because the electricity goes out, this then goes out and the subway stops, then people here, and one of them was uh, a woman giving birth at one of the hospitals uh, and... Uh, they just mentioned, they showed that one of the gases being used was flammable and labelled that, and so that's happening. Um, uh, they've, they've managed, the nurses think, oh, well, we'll bring some candles in because this woman's in labour, and then the, the, the doctors doing the delivery are sort of getting her out, out, out. I don't know why. I mean, do they use it? Were they still using ether then, I wonder, or something really stupid Possibly. like that, which is very flammable. Anyway, it it showed how just one little component failing triggered a whole series of events. Uh, and he, he challenges us to think, well, you know, what, what happens? We, we depend on technology. It's a trap. Can we survive without technology? And he works through all the stages of a te- uh, technological 
collapse, which at the time, uh, given that was one of the heights of the Cold War, was was certainly on people's mind. Anyway, I'm rabbiting on there. Matt Arkell, thank you very much for that. Pharmaceutical experts are sounding the alarm in Washington as America's health system struggles to handle ongoing drug shortages. As Fox's Rich Edson reports, lawmakers want to know why some drugs are hard to find. Drug shortages are a significant public health risk of the highest national priority. Pharmaceutical experts warn Americans are at risk as there are shortages of low-cost generic drugs, generic sterile injectable drugs, and cancer-fighting medications. GSI drugs include drug, uh, drugs uh, to treat cancer, crash cart drugs used to treat life-threatening emergencies, morphine, um, IV antibiotics and IV nutrition, and something as basic as saline and sterile water for injection. Now that Fox News report is from the US, obviously, uh, about a, a month, month and a half ago or something like that, not long ago. Here in Australia, Trent, um, you're telling me we, we have the same sort of problem. I checked that piece from the Cairns Post. It's obviously in, in other news sources as well. 446 medicines are currently impacted by shortages and discontinuations across the country. 40 critical medicines are unavailable thousands of Australians, and that will continue at least until early next year, early 2024. This sounds serious. Uh, it is serious. It's Look, it perhaps isn't quite as serious as it sounds because we have been dealing with these sort of drug shortages for a number of years, um, and, you know, we always seem to just manage or just get by um, in many cases there are substitutions that you can make so you know there's other opioid analgesics if morphine's not available most infections can be treated with a different antibiotic if the one that we would usually use first line is is not available but um yeah look it is it's a major problem and a growing problem and uh you know i think well you know if you want the super, super summarised version of what the problem is. The problem is capitalism. Right. <laughs> there you go. Uh, could you expand on that slightly? I, yes. I, I can. I can. I, so I'm, at the moment I'm actually reading um, Corey Doctorow's book, The Internet Con, um, which I would recommend to everybody. And basically he is sort of talking about the problem of the internet being essentially five-walled gardens that don't talk to each other. And in the introduction to the book, he talks about how the you know this centralisation of power and the internet has come through the, the gradual weakening of antitrust monopoly laws in, in the States and that that has allowed the big tech companies to become bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, the... The prototypical example of that conglomeration of power is really the pharmaceutical industry. So there used to be lots of little companies that made their their particular drug, but over time, because of economies of scale and you know business mergers and and you know the economics of competition, there's been lots and lots and lots of amalgamation. And now there's essentially like five or six big pharma companies around the world that are responsible for the manufacture of the majority of drugs that we use in therapeutics. At one level, that makes sense for economies of scale, though, because you need a lab. If your lab is kind of a big lab, then you're going to be able to throw more researchers at a problem, and you're yep. going to more effectively be able to do the the relevant testing and negotiations with authorities and selling it into new markets and <laughs> running the TV ads in the United States. That doesn't come yeah. cheap. But and look. That's exactly right, and that has been the rationale that the companies have used to get around the little bits of antitrust laws that still exist. They're going, oh, well, you know, we can provide better service to our customers and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that is all entirely true until it's not. And then the problem is that when something goes wrong, the the massive centralisation of all those resources then has very significant ongoing cascading effects. Um, so. The best example I can think of was, oh, I think it was 2018, uh, there was a worldwide shortage of, of the antibiotic Piprocillin Tazobactam, which we all call Tazosin, um, or the American listeners will call Zosin, uh, which uh, 
those of you who are antibiotic stewardship doctors like me will say it's the quote unquote the antibiotic you put people on when you don't know what's going on <laughs> and it, you know it accounts for a significant proportion of in hospital antibiotic use because of its utility in being a you know a broad spectrum antibiotic for treating people who are very sick now as it turns out there are two factories in the world that manufacture one of the raw like one of the sort of products in the manufacturing chain for this antibiotic and then in early 2018 one of them burnt down and so that meant that all of the downstream production was essentially halved and then they only had half as much tazacin to go around and this is a reason that australia is particularly vulnerable to these sort of drug shortages the australian pharmaceutical market is approximately equivalent to the pharmaceutical drug market of texas so 150th of the united states and mm-hmm. we're kind of con- conveniently located in the arse end of the southern hemisphere where everything's very expensive to send stuff to so you've got to pay more to ship your drugs and then we have this very rigid government drug funding program called the pbs which is great for consumers because it means we don't pay lots for our pharmaceuticals but it's not really very good for drug companies manufacturers because they are you know i guess they have to pay fixed government pricing and they can't run ads on tv to stimulate market demand and then get everybody to buy it at inflated us prices so (laughs) australia is uniquely vulnerable to these supply chain vulnerabilities and then as we saw with covid if every Filipino labourer who you pay two cents a day to work in the bowels of your container ship dies of COVID, or if once they get to Australia, they're made to more 250 kilometres offshore until all the COVID burns out on their ship, then the containers can't be unloaded and the drugs don't get in. And so there's all of these factors that mean that we're really uniquely vulnerable to these drug shortages. That uh, points again to the kind of uh, connections in the TV series, connections, that there are these cascading effects because we depend on technology, which is works fine 99% of the time, but that's that's still not 100%. And we saw that uh, with the telco network Optus in Australia where it was down for, for 12 hours, um, but then that meant other businesses couldn't process payments, it meant all manner of things just simply couldn't happen. I think there's a real underappreciation of the benefit of, um, I guess, understanding this sort of system science in healthcare. You know, healthcare particularly has this very inward-looking sort of opinion where, like, nothing that's been done in any other industry can ever possibly apply to healthcare because healthcare is special and complicated. But, you know, many (laughs) of these problems are, you know, in exactly comparable to things that happen in the airline industry and in mining and in large industrial sort of companies. But but healthcare as a system is very poor at looking outwards to see what lessons we can learn from other industries. Well, I will at this point play uh, another grab. This is uh, another news story from uh, a very short time ago. Queensland hospitals are on alert for a deadly bacterium following the death of a patient on the Sunshine Coast. A medical saline product has been immediately pulled from shelves, suspected of being the contamination cause. A medical fluid used daily in all hospitals across the country now suspected of causing harm. So how did this play out? Uh, We heard earlier that saline is used in everything, right? You use it for diluting drugs, you use it to rehydrate people, you use it for and everything. Yeah, absolutely. I I saw like the the you know the one line the the lead from a, a medical story where one of my mates was being interviewed. You know, Paul Griffin interviewed on the uses of saline in hospitals. I thought, wow, that's going to be quite an interview. Um, but you're <laughs> right; it is absolutely ubiquitously used. And the these sort of contamination thing, you know, obviously stuff that is designed to be put in patients is made to be sterile. That's that's how it's intended. That's a, that's, that's, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes these sterilisation systems break down. And, uh, you know, if, if it's a low-frequency event, then the, the companies who manufacture these goods will have some sort of sterility sort of assurance um, 
system in place. But if it's, if it's just a little bit or it's just one particular batch or they didn't sample the right part of the batch, then it might be missed and, and the product makes its way out into, um, uh, into clinical use. And so in this case, look, it's still very much playing out. So you know, I can't really give you the end of the story. But the, a, some saline products have this bacterium in them, which is called Ralstonia, which is, number one, not a very pathogenic bacteria. You know, generally doesn't cause problems in people who are healthy and, you know, not immunosuppressed. But obviously Just it's used to in clarify, pathogenic means causing a problem. Uh, thank you. Sorry. For those of us who don't speak medical Latin um, or Greek. Or Greek. I don't know which one that is. I'll have to look it up now. Um, no, anyway, so no, the, a small <laughs> a small number of these products had this bacterium in it, and then if the saline was given intravenously, then you would basically be injecting small numbers of bacteria into people's bodies, which, again, most of the time your immune system would just clear up, but if people who have got impaired or weakened immune systems could potentially cause disease. And it's really tricky even to find out that this sort of thing is a problem because Ralstonia is a very rare bug. Like we wouldn't, it's not something that we see every day when when we have a look at the the samples that are going through our lab. We go, oh gee, you know, Ralstonia, that's weird. Wonder why that happened. You know, it must just be bad luck, no big deal, you, and you move on. But then when your hospital gets a second one the next week and you go, oh, we saw one of them last week, and that's not very common. wonder if there's something going on. And that happening in sort of multiple places simultaneously is what led to the recognition that this was actually a, you know, a point source outbreak from these contaminated products. We saw a similar thing in the, the US over the last few months with um, eye drops, particularly the, uh, well, what we could call them artificial tears, can't we? The sort of thing people mm-hmm. wear contact lenses uh, use. Um, and 27 different brands of this had to be recalled because all of these brands used the same underlying manufacturer, uh, which was uh, Clidditch Healthcare India Limited. So let, let's get a bit more racism in there. Uh, make it, we've, and we've got you know American senators sitting up on their hind feet, going, "Oh, we should be making this in America." Uh, yeah, look, that's, supply that's, chains, eh? I- Supply chains, and but it comes back to, you know, why are those eyedrops manufactured in India? Well, they're manufactured in India because it's too expensive to pay American factory workers, so you outsource it to the developing world country with weaker labour laws so you can pay the workers less, with fewer industrial quality standards so you then don't have to worry as much about doing sterility testing and then your cost of buying that particular raw product is lower so your big pharma company based in the United States can make more profit for their shareholders. So like I said before, capitalism. It's just capitalism. Yeah, capitalism. Uh, Well, finally, Trent, uh, here's a story we can't ignore. It's a scary outbreak of white lung syndrome for this mom of triplets. <laughs> All three of Holly Overton's toddlers are sick. I was very surprised when they said that Lucy had pneumonia. Little Lucy has pediatric pneumonia, also called white lung syndrome, because of that cloudy image that shows up on a chest X-ray. Her sisters, Annie and Daisy, have similar symptoms. Now all three are on antibiotics. And Ohio in particular is being hit with white lung syndrome. And this is a new disease that Americans are not being told about. And maybe it comes from China or not. What is it? So a chest X-ray is essentially... uh, densitometry basically you shine some x-rays through people and Mm. things that are more dense so bones absorb more x-rays and so appear white and things that are less dense like air because your lungs are giant sponges full of air appear black if you get pneumonia that is the presence of pus in your lungs pus is denser than air so the x-ray looks white so all pneumonia has white lungs because that's the the definition of pneumonia, it is having an area of pus in your lungs. That's what pneumonia is. And so, yes, they have discovered an outbreak of perhaps the most commonly diagnosed bacterial infection in the world. Good job. Excellent. Uh, And I was thrilled. uh, That's from a longer 
uh, news report. I was thrilled by one of the comments uh, in that from Blake Matthews 9694 uh, from four days ago at time of recording. I didn't know pneumonia was contagious. Thought it was something people developed on their own when they'd gotten sick and the cold wasn't treated early on. Uh, look, there's a grain of grain of truth in that, but it's mostly bullshit. Um, so some pneumonia is contagious, some pneumonia is not contagious. You can get pneumonia as a complication of a simple infection. So, so mm-hmm. that is a little bit right. You don't catch cold, you know, pneumonia. You don't you don't get it from going out in the in the rain and not drying off. Um, but yeah, so my mother, very- my mother told me so many things which turned out not to be true. It's terrible, isn't it? Wear, wear clean underpants because you might have to go to hospital. And, and I'll tell you what, the times <laughs> I have gone to hospital, no one has been interested in the state of my underpants. That is very true. Very true. Mm. Although, I don't know, maybe <laughs> maybe things, not not about your underpants specifically, I but that reminds me, I, was just, I saw a story on um, ABC News yesterday. So the... Um, uh, Olympic swimmer Ariana Titmus uh, has, quote, unquote, gone public. So she was having a minor surgical procedure in a hospital mm. and she said that she felt that she needed to go public about what her diagnosis was because she felt that it would be leaked from the hospital system because she was asked by a lot of hospital staff if she could sign things for them and if they could take selfies with her while she was in hospital. Oh. And I was just completely flabbergasted by that. Like, you know, number one as if you would do that to a patient. Oh, I know you're sick and you need surgery, but hey, selfie, is that cool? Uh, and number two, like what about confidentiality? Like presumably all these people are taking selfies so they can post them on their Instagram. It's just it's just completely outrageous. So maybe, Stilgarian, you are now famous enough that people would care about the condition of your underpants. <laughs> that would be a good point to end, but I will add one thing to that. Uh, once a few years ago, due to uh, badly wired uh, electrical circuits in an old house I, I was renting, uh, there was a big blue flash and there was vaporised bakelite and metal and I got um, burns to my left hand, which were technically third-degree burns because the very outer layers did char a bit, although it wasn't that serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, <laughs> went straight to hospital, obviously, um, and... Uh, uh, they were a bit busy because on the ramp immediately before I arrived was a bloke who was having a heart attack and was, you know, really not in a good way and this was a small suburban hospital so I had to wait and they gave me a little quiet room to wait where I got a big bowl of ice water to put my hand in. Um, but then there was a steady stream of nurses from other parts of the hospital because they'd never seen third-degree burns. They all wanted to come down and have a look, which was a – I think a valid training exercise, but <laughs> I thought this was the quiet room where I could just cry because no one can give me painkillers until a doctor's seen me and the doctors are busy. Mm-hmm. <sighs> it's not quite the same as being an Olympic swimmer, is it? It's close enough. Yeah, it is. Uh, Trent Yarwood, you are not an Olympic swimmer either, nor an Olympic fencer for that matter, but you are a doctor, Dr. Trent Yarwood. Thank you very much. For all that, for all that, and my underpants. My, my pleasure, Stilgarian. Thanks for having me back. Well, that's all the edict for now. Please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip and do the needful. Tell your friends about the podcast. Do all of those things. The next episode is coming up in just a few days with John Birmingham, which should be fun. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. I have to keep saying wash your hands or Trent's going to complain. He has this whole thing about infectious diseases. I mean, you've heard what he's like. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.